Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the O Group on the Wobbles Nation podcast. Myself, Wobble to Explorer, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Battleford Guy, Ben Main, here at Wobbles Nation. In episode 35, we conclude our conversation with George Bearfield, discussing the actions of his grandfather and his Czech colleagues, who served as agents with the SOE during the Second World War, including Operation Anthropoid, Operation Foursquare, and many other operations that these brave men volunteered to partake in by dropping behind enemy lines into occupied Europe. So, uh, welcome back for the uh, the next part of uh, this interview with George, looking at his new book, Foursquare, The Last Parachutist. Uh, we discussed uh, the, the build-up all around Operation Anthropoids and how your grandfather linked in to the men of that operation. And we're going to continue your grandfather's journey uh, so after uh, the anthropoid operation, uh, news would have broke to the men back in the UK. Uh, that uh, wasn't the end for them. They had to continue. They still had uh, the war in front of them and they were planning for their own operations. And in particular, your grandfather had his own operation that would uh, eventually come round and he would have to train for. Yeah, I guess that was a... As you say, there was a lot more to this story. Um, and they still had a job to do and they still had a country to win back. Um, that, was the, that was the mission. The, the mission statement was clear. They had to, to get Czechoslovakia back as an independent, democratic, socialist country. That was always the, um, the mission statement. So I think my grandfather, from initially, he was, as I say, initially he trained many of the radio operators, or all the radio operators for those early missions, um, him and his colleague, uh, Miroslav Novak um and 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 others um post anthropoid there was actually again there wasn't a lot that was what we know about the mission or believe we know about the mission now was not known at the time so there was a lot of confusion as to what exactly had happened um an early mission that was sent in um, post anthropoid was a mission called operation antimony so uh, this was three men, uh, Frantisek, Zavorka, Stanislav Shrazil, and, uh, and Lubomir Jastinek. I, I should say, much to my granddad's um, frustration, I never learned to speak Czech. So I, I'm realising now it would have been quite a helpful skill uh, <laughs> with all of this paperwork. Would have saved me a few pounds in translation fees as well. But um, there you go. Um, so, uh, But these three men were sent on a mission October 1942. Uh, they were sent to Pardubice, which was the location of the, silver, of the transmitter for Silver A. So because they had had that last mission, I think I mentioned it, um, you know, when we spoke earlier about um, uh, from Potacek, the radio operator, saying the Zaki is levelled, I'm the only one left. Um, you know, they sent a team out to try and, um, and um, basically find out what had happened and try and re-establish that communications network. Um, because just as had been predicted, of course, the the, the Nazi reprisals had had a, a, a you know terrible impact on the on on um, Benesh's information capability and the resistance. Full stop. Um, so the men were sent out to to do that. It actually it was at this point that the it exposed some difficulties in the relationship between the Czechs and their British hosts. Um, so uh, and I couldn't quite get to the grips of this from the research. Um, but it appears that um, Benesh sent a um, one of the members of Antimony out with a note uh, for the resistance. Um, and at this time, um, 
one of the key objectives for Benesh was to ensure that in any peace agreement, they were able to, uh, in effect, remove as many of the Sudetenlanders as possible because his view was it had been proven that the country could not be secure and independent with uh, the Sudetenlanders as you know, a fifth column within the country. So that was one of his principal political objectives. And I believe the note said something to the local resistance to the effect that um, um, Benesh, Benesh's view that the British were prepared to go with him in taking a very strong line on the expulsion of the Sudetenlanders. Now, I think this was almost intended to be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and that once it was out there, it'd be very hard for the British to row back from that position. So again, geopolitics at a very high level. But the problem was this mission, this personal note from Benesh had been smuggled out with um, antimony to give to the home resistance contacts um, without the knowledge of the British and the SOE. Uh, and actually, the SOE did a, a search of all members before they went out, basically to check to see, in principle, to check to see whether they, to double check that they didn't have anything about them that would compromise uh, the British if they um, were uncovered, but also probably just to double check that they weren't taking anything out. So th this meant that this, must have, this note must have been smuggled. <laughs> so there started to be a little bit of tension. I mean, as far as the Czechoslovaks were concerned, they were a sovereign government on British soil, and that was recognised, and therefore they had a degree of things that they were doing for Czechoslovakia, not for Britain. But it, created, it was one of the many things that started to cause some sensitivity around the uh, degree of independence that the Czechoslovaks had on British soil, particularly as the, the relationship, as the war evolved and the relationship with other superpowers, um, Russia uh, and the US uh, started to evolve um, because Britain was no longer in the war. It didn't have the Czechs, you know, the Czechs had other sponsors or um, strategic partners. And so the, the tension started to evolve. Um, unfortunately, antimony, um, was not a successful mission, uh, as many of them weren't. It was dropped in. Um, I believe they were in a house with a, with a lot of partisans when they were surrounded by the Gestapo. Um, the, um, uh, the Gestapo were, they were, they were preparing for a firefight uh, and the leader of uh, Antimony sent a message out saying that the, they would, the parachutists would surrender as long as the the rest of the you know um, the rest you know the rest of the, the people there were spared, um, but they would only surrender to Czech um, policemen. Now um, they came out um, having diffused the tension. They came out. Um, I believe one of them was humming the Czech national anthem as he came, <laughs> and then before they could get caught, they uh, all swallowed tried to swallow their cyanide tablets. Uh, now, one of the men did this successfully. The captain of the mission, um, uh, Zavorka, I think, was successful in swallowing his cyanide tablet. Uh, Srazil wasn't able to. Um, Lubomir Jazinek, who, again, I've got photographs of my grandfather training him for the mission. Uh, he, he, he was partially successful in that he swallowed his tablet whole. So they took him to a um, doctor's surgery to pump his stomach, uh, but they were unsuccessful. Uh, so apparently he asked for a cigarette smoked it in the doctor's waiting room, admiring the paintings on the wall before he then <laughs> collapsed um, and died. But this then meant that um, Srazil was um, alive and in the custody of the Gestapo. So this was the first of what would become a pattern in the remaining missions of the war. And there were many parachute missions in the war where uh, there was a degree of compromise 
Um, and so there was uncertainty around the integrity of information that was coming back. So Srazil started communicating with my grandfather and the other team members at the Czech Radio Centre in Bedfordshire, the VRU, as it was called, in um, Hockcliffe, just outside Leighton Buzzard. Um, as I say, they were in, all the men there were in a, a Nissan hut, about 15 of them in a farmer's field, uh, with the latest equipment from Bletchley, um, you know, um, uh, Morse code, radio, and um, even teleprinters. So they were sort of directly in contact with Bletchley. Um, so they started to get the messages from uh, Srazil, um, but immediately they suspected that um, that they were compromised. Uh, and actually, at one point, Srazil uh, inserted a code into the message, known only to them, indicating that he was operating under duress. Now, the problem was then that the men on their busy schedule had to maintain contact with Srazil and maintain the illusion that, that they didn't know he was compromised. Um, otherwise the Gestapo would have no value for him and would kill him. And unfortunately, that is what happened in the end. Um, they, they realized that, the, that they were just, the, the, um, the, the Czechs were just playing a game uh, and, and Srazil was, was executed. So um, I'm just saying, I mean, that, that I'm trying to work out the chronology here, but that was the, so that was what happened in the immediate aftermath. This was 1943. Um, and as those years ticked by, uh, it comes across in, in the book as well that the Allies do begin to get the upper hand that the war is being won, not just from the Western side, but also from the Soviet front. And you can kind of see a shift in the way that they begin to look beyond the war and how things may pan out in the future for the country. Will they have their independence? Will they be liberated by the, the democracy of the West or will the Soviets come from the East to take control? And you can see that there's a build-up towards how they may want the future of the country to uh, shape as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I mean, that was the fascinating thing for me was to understand the, these parachute missions are almost pressure points in a, a geopolitical landscape that's changing and so learning about that ultimately is what allowed me to fully understand what my grandfather was doing because he was one of those probably the most important he was actually the most important of those pressure points but we'll get we'll get to that but um so you're right the things evolved i mean from benesh's perspective you know there's a is it otto von bismarck quote um who rules bohemia rules europe and so you know, again, back to the original political project, Czechoslovakia needed to preserve its independence. To do that, it could only do so if there was um, East, if both Eastern and Western powers, A, recognised, genuinely recognised its independence and were at peace with each other. Which is quite, two quite big asks, really, <laughs> if you think about it. It shows how difficult the mission that they'd been set was. And so um, Benesh acted as a... Um, he was a ben, Benesh was a statesman of some experience and repute uh, right from the First World War um, and really understood European politics more than anyone. And so actually, remember when the Allies started to uh, court the Soviets and then formed a, a truce with them against Hitler, you know, a, 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 a formed a partnership with them, um, there was a lot of scepticism. In, in quarters of the US and in Britain about the wisdom of doing that. Uh, Scepticism, which you might say was well-founded in, in the end. Um, but actually, Benesh was one of the key people who vouched for Stalin um, and, and with some credibility um, because of his position. And Stalin knew this, and Stalin very much played the position that 
a you know he knew the politics so he very much played the position that Czech, that he he wanted Czechoslovakia to be an independent part partner and a bridge to the west um so that was very much the the, the theme and then from the west you know um the, you know um Roosevelt Churchill and others liked the fact that Benesh was a respected uh, democratic statesman who was supporting their view to find um positive engagement with Russia and Soviet Union so that was the knife edge that he was on and you can see this all you're right you can see all this play out with the succession of missions and so the first obviously the first part of um Czechoslovakia that was uh, ripe for um an uprising against the Nazis was Slovakia because Slovakia had always been a bit of a a bit of an outlier it hadn't had the draconian um rule that um uh, Bohemia and Moravia had and to be honest being completely honest about it, the Slovakians were much more pro-Nazi. Um, and so when, but when the Russians um, started, you know, to threaten the East and, and the war started to turn in their favour, uh, conditions for an uprising in Slovakia um, became uh, present. And there were some missions sent out, parachute missions, to engage with the partisans to uh, try and win back um, that part of the country first. So, and again, um, my understanding of this was that the there was an uprising. The trying to paraphrase it because it is all quite complex political stuff. But there was an uprising with support from um, Benesh and his general Benesh and his generals. Um, but the Russian support was withheld and done with a view to get the the, the uprising to do the legwork of starting it and to make the sacrifices, but for then Russia to come in and pick up the pieces, basically. So they parachuted in partisans. Um, they were encouraging guerrilla warfare, but they were not actively involved in um, in the uprising. And they want what they really wanted was for the for the, the the native forces to burn themselves out in trying to win back the country, and for them then to come sweeping across and take over the territory. And I'm sure Benesh knew this as well. But what he was trying to do was to position himself with the right agents and the right intelligence on the ground to to win the peace, in effect. And that was the balance. One interesting mission here was Operation Wolfram. Um, so my one of my grandfather's oldest friends was a man, uh, from, you know, from the beginning of the war was a man called Carol Svoboda. So we'd actually shared a tent with him in Chumley Park. And he was actually the original selection for the uh, Heydrich assassination before uh, Jan Kubisch. And Kubisch was injured in parachute training and, uh, sorry, Svoboda was injured in parachute training and Kubisch came in as a replacement. So um, when they got towards the end of the war, they started then combing that first generation of men again for experienced parachutists to go in. There was less of a need, as the war went on, there was less and less of a need for training capability and more and more of a need for experience. And so Svoboda was one of the men who was sent as part of Operation Wolfram, which was Eastern Moravia, but really to support the sort of uprising in that part of the country. Again, the, the book covers some of this about how Svoboda was unfortunately caught and tortured um, uh, and had quite a, a, um, a horrific um, story. But basically the, the Slovak uprising was um, uns unsuccessful in in regards of you know it, it, it petered out um but it was a sign that that the country was ripe for uprising and it did encourage then benesh and the exiles to start to think about seeding different parts of the country with new intelligence networks and with good links with the local resistance uh, as we move from 1944 into 1945 and again there were lots of missions but a couple that's worth mentioning um because again members of the groups were 
colleagues of my grandfather. Another one of the early recruits and radio operators uh, was a man called uh, Chestermere Shikula. Uh, in fact, I've got, again, photographs of my grandfather with him in, in Chumley, Chumley Park um, and, uh, and various training schools. So he was, it appears that he was also one of the early recruits who was kept on for radio training in an early part of the war. Um, he was parachuted in, um, I think, in 44 into Moravia as part of Operation Clay. So obviously with it moving east to west, once Slovakia fell, Moravia would be next and then finally Bohemia uh, as the most western part of the country. So Clay was, was parachuted in to build a Moravian intelligence network. So with, with two radio operators, um, Chestermere, Schickler and a guy called um, Jiri Stockman. And it was led by uh, a Captain Bartosz, not not the another Bartosz. Some of the names that you know re re repeat. Uh, and what they did basically was they were dropped into Moravia, and they were very successful. They almost created a pyramid scheme where they would recruit members of the um, intelligence, who would each recruit three more, but nobody would know beyond their three three uh, recruits. So they so remember this, as I said before, this whole environment was ripe for infiltration from the Gestapo, who got wise to some of these parachute tactics. Um, it was quite a strong way of building a network because it meant that 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 once part of it was penetrated, not all of it was, and, and through that they managed to keep themselves separated out from some of the um, from some of the um, you know uh, work that was going on. So they managed to be quite successful in building an intelligence network and building links with the Moravians. And then finally, um, we get into 1945. So. Um, the political background to this is that, um, you know, the percentages agreement, you know, that so, so at various conferences, uh, Roosevelt, um, Stalin and Churchill had sat down and basically started to plan for what the, um, what the Europe would look like at the end of the war. Um, and the uh, account for this in Churchill's diaries is very much that, you know, he passed a piece of paper to, um, to Stalin with, um, percentages indicating the degree of influence that countries would have and that Stalin took this as ownership <laughs> of the countries. Um, and I don't think the percentages agreement explicitly mentioned Czechoslovakia. It's probably too much of a hot potato even for that level of discussion. But ultimately, the agreement that was reached was that Czechoslovakia would be in the uh, Russian sphere of influence, which to the West meant, you know, degrees of political patronage, but to Stalin meant that he owned it. Um, now, he carried on playing the game with uh, Benesh, um, uh, entertaining the idea that he'd be independent, but gradually started to infiltrate the political um, system and, the, uh, you know, and, and, and start to build the influence that he would need to take over the country. It helped that he had a massive army um, rolling in across the border, uh, of course. And, and, and if it was the case, it was always the case that if it was deemed that Czechoslovakia was in the Russian sphere of influence, then ultimately Benesh's political strategy was going to fail because uh, he needed his country to be recognized as independent and he needed the East and the West at peace. So um, it was in this sort of febrile environment that they had a final flurry of parachute missions. So the basic strategy, as I understand it, was that if um, Czechoslovakia could encourage uh, local uprisings, and take control of the territory to the west, particularly in Bohemia, where the seat of government was, and if they could encourage as much active involvement of the Americans as possible, then 
Benesh would have a chance of negotiating a, a strategic withdrawal from Czechoslovakia, which would leave him in control at the seat of government. Uh, but if the if the Red Army was just allowed to sweep across the country, then the writing was on the wall. So uh, a, one of the early missions that was sent in was an operation uh, platinum. So, and again, that was with one of my granddad's old colleague, a man called Yaroslav Klemesh, was the radio operator, and it was led by somebody who was absolutely critical at this stage of the war and to Benesh's plans, is called uh, Yaromir Nachansky. So he was the leader of Operation Platinum, and he was like the commanding officer for this the flurry of missions that would go. Uh, on at the sort of dying days of the war. So um, there was a handful of missions and basically they were made up of some of the most able members of the military brigade and the, the, the Czechoslovak exile army and members of the VRU. So um, the old guard of radio operators. Uh, so all my granddad's colleagues from the VRU in effect were selected to undertake part to be part of these missions because again communications was key and what they would be doing as well as setting up the communications is in effect the intelligence headquarters was intended to move to Prague from London so you know saves on a ticket a plane ticket I guess if you <laughs> parachuted out so um, the names of these missions is chrome uh, mortar uh, there's a whole range of these missions and they were basically designed there to, to try to try and encourage the uprising and to try and um, build the communications now um, as Benesh then went and embedded himself with the um, the Red Army and they initially set up the seat of government as Slovak territory fell they set up the seat of government in uh, Kozitsi, Kozitsi I'm not sure how to pronounce it but in, in Slovakia now of course with Benesh embedded with the Red Army there was very limited opportunity for him to oversee this strategy of engaging with the Americans in the West, because <laughs> that wouldn't have gone down very well. Uh, <laughs> so there was a degree of, as I have interpreted it, there was a degree of autonomy given to, um, uh, uh, well, at this point, František Morovets had fallen out of favor because the Russians knew that he was um, onto their game. And so Benesh was encouraged to dispense with him. And actually it was his, um, his deputy, one of his deputies, or his, one of his deputies, Carol, Palacek, who was in effect working with uh, Jan Masaryk, who was uh, Thomas Masaryk's son and the, and the foreign officer. They were the ones coordinating this engagement with the West, which they cultivated relationships with America throughout the war. And so what happened was that as the, as the, as the Red Army was rushing in from the East, uh, the Americans got to the border. And um, this was at the start of May. Now, Hitler had died at this point. It was clear that, the, that the, the, the war was coming to an end and it was a fight for territory, just as was happening in Germany with Berlin, you know, in, in reaching in pinnacle of Berlin. Prague was the prize um, at this sort of latitude. Um, and so, but the Americans were at the border, but they had an agreement with the Russians that they would not enter Czech territory. But clearly they were conflicted because they knew the political implications of that. So the American Third Army um, went into Pilsen and, and liberated Pilsen. So a Pilsen uprising started and liberated Pilsen. Now, exactly this time, it was at this time, so my grandfather's mission at this time was one of that final flurry of missions, Operation Foursquare. And he was to lead a mission, well, it's unclear. <laughs> So um, looking into the files, the clearest description of the mission, it says organizing is the, <laughs> is the description of what it's supposed to do, which seems, and that's in the secret files. It seems pretty vague. 
Uh, but the missions do make it clear that he and his team of, of younger recruits were uh, given a key part of their equipment, silenced machine guns. And um, my grandfather told me, one of the things he did tell me was that he, he said that the mission went ahead and that his mission was to um, basically trigger the uprising in, in Pilsen so that uh, the Americans would have to come in um, and that he was to do that, him and his team, by um, assassinating German section leaders uh, and, and really provoking a local uprising. Now, um, but what happened was, um, as the Americans then liberated Pilsen at that time, the Russians protested strongly because they were going to go on to Prague. Um, and they were um, um, told to stand down, and they did, and they stopped at they stopped at Pilsen. So, um, the mission files say that Foursquare and several other missions were cancelled and were not dropped. And still, my understanding to this day is that's the official position. Operation Foursquare never, never happened. Um, so this was really the search for the book. I was conflicted through this understanding that officially this mission never happened, but my grandfather said that it did, and he should know. Um, and so um, I dug into the files and reached my best understanding of what happened. And this is a spoiler. From this point on, it is a bit of a spoiler for the book. So if people do want to read the book, they might want to tune out the next, the next few minutes and read it them, themselves. But um, my understanding is that he worked again with a degree of autonomy but mainly at this point not with the SOE and the British but with the American Office of Strategic Services which was the forerunner of the CIA and that either they went rogue or were given license to support the Czechs in doing these missions to try and do something under the radar that the Russians didn't know about to try and gain more influence in um, Czechoslovakia and to help with Czechoslovakia maintaining its independence. So I believe he was, my, my personal view, so the official record you'll get is that it didn't, the mission didn't happen. And that's a, that's a view, of it, that's the thing that my grandfather clung to for the rest of his life, particularly, um, oh, I'll go on to talk a little bit about that. But officially the mission didn't happen. Um, but um, I believe it did happen. It triggered the Pilsen uprising. The Americans came in. And then I believe my grandfather went on to Prague to work with Nachansky. Uh, and the others on the Prague uprising, uh, and then after the Prague uprising, they made their, him and his team made their way back to England via France, um, where they were supposed to be, <laughs> uh, and then returning to England. And I believe the SOE knew about it, but I don't believe British intelligence services more generally knew that this had happened. So that they there's a bit of a degree of um, plausible um, deniability. So the reasons why I think that, the reasons why I triangulate that view, but it made complete that is the most plausible story for me as to why this um, was there. And I actually did get, the trigger for me in the book is I actually got a copy of my grandfather's um, parachute missions, which he kept his whole life, which said that the mission didn't happen. So there, are, you know, he's got a copy of a mission report right to his dying day saying the mission didn't happen, but he's telling me it happened. And the trigger point for me was really a view that, that this was his alibi. So. You know, that it was his defence if anybody ever came to him, query him what had happened. Um, he, at the end of the war, he was um, 
very well positioned. Uh, he was, you know, he knew Jan Masaryk, who's foreign minister. Uh, obviously, you know, was very uh, high up in the in the in the government and the, the, the and the foreign foreign office. Um, but it, but from forty five to forty eight, um, Czechoslovakia very quickly went from a theoretically independent democratic company to country to a uh, one under Soviet domination. You know, Iron Curtain and the Cold War. Um, so his story from forty five to forty eight is one of trying to f win the battle for Czechoslovakia within the country, but gradually losing that that battle. Um, Benesh was increasingly uh, ill after strokes and others, and the, the independence of Czechoslovakia really depended on him because he was the, the one person that everybody visibly supported. So he was conflicted, uh, having to, to almost continue the lie that it was possible to do a deal with Stalin and maintain his independence. You know, he'd invested his whole political career in that. So that left him in a very difficult position as the Russian uh, Soviets gradually took control. And my grandfather was initially based in, I think, Yugoslavia. Then he was based in Prague for a time, working with um, Jan Masaryk's um, foreign, because Jan, Jan Masaryk was the foreign, it was the foreign minister. And then he was moved, interestingly, he was moved to the US quarters of Berlin uh, to work there, which is a safer place for him to be, <laughs> I'll have to say. Uh, where he was involved with um, some of the planning, uh, I guess he would have been involved with the planning around what happened to the Sudeten population that was transplanted to Germany uh, in very difficult circumstances. That wasn't really a pleasant thing to be involved with. Um, and so he watched at arm's length as his country was gradually uh, subverted and as Benesh was gradually made to um, put in a position where the, um, you know, the, in, in February 1948, it came to a head uh, when, um, there was a, a communist coup, uh, and Czechoslovakia was 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 lost. Um, and and Jan Masaryk, who was his um, patron, mysteriously, obviously, you know, in the famous third defenestration of Prague, people tend to fall out windows quite a lot in Prague for some reason. But um, you know, Jan Masaryk was um, fell to his death from his um, from his flat. Uh, it was a, a personal friend of my grandfather's, and it you know, again, another very uh, traumatic situation. So. It ended up that my grandfather was in Berlin at the time where the Berlin airlift was on uh, without any political support, uh, with his country fallen to the communists um, and with a young child and wife, English wife and, and my mother born. So um, he spoke to the American authorities and got a plane out of um, Berlin to London, to Croydon Airport, which is exactly where Moravitz had arrived many years earlier with his intelligence team. And basically, he had to spend his life in exile, so he had to start his life over again. Um, he ended up working at the post office in London, um, as using his, his his wireless and you know communication skills. Uh, but but right into the nineteen fifties, he was regularly getting um, calls from communist uh, authorities, um, threatening his life and telling him that if he ever so much as looked at Czechoslovakia again. Uh, they knew exactly well where he lived, and um, uh, that wouldn't be tolerated. Um, and interestingly, one of the things I found out actually from a story from my sister as I was researching the final stages of the book was he actually apparently received an invite to go and work with somewhere in the Middle East with some of his old colleagues to actually foment a rebellion against the communist regime. So actually they were, they were right to be worried about him because uh, he was seriously considering um, taking the fight back uh, 
you know, to carry on with the original mission and to try and make Czechoslovakia independent and democratic again. So, and Nachansky, the leader of those final missions, he and um, he was he was actually uh, um, in I think 1952 or earlier. Uh, there were trials and. There was a case made against him that he was committing treason against the new state and he was executed and he would have been my grandfather's you know co in effect and then in 1952 there was the famous slansky trials where a lot of the um the jewish members of the of the communist government were purged by the regime so um a lot of the pieces do um uh, fit in as to um as, as as to the story and you know I look at the, I've read about Nachansky's trial and there was a lot of um, you know comments made that it was trumped up and there was false evidence. I've no doubt that there was because that's that's that. But I also no doubt that from what I know about Nachansky is he would have wanted to overthrow the communist government. <laughs> you know the difficult political um, political times. But so my grandfather spent his life in in, in exile. Um, you know he was a civil servant, worked at the post office, and spoke very very little about any of this. You know. Um, uh, and I guess we come full circle, really, from our story. As you know, I came to know him in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, uh, you know, and as I've gone on this journey after his death to really find out more about it, I was able to weave in lots of little anecdotes and stories which support the overall narrative. Things he said, um, comments he made, um, which ultimately have come together in the book to kind of um, crystallise for me the the, um, the story. And, and validate it and um, you know for me the mission statement is um you know going back to his um student protest uh in the name of jan hus the motto who, who coined the, the the motto of czechoslovakia the truth prevails so you know i've tried to look, look through all this in what is a very murky uh, politically complex um morally complex initiative to take the mission statement the truth prevails and really try and uncover actually what the what happened? I think there's enough distance now in time to to, to actually be honest about some of the um, some of the complexities and some of the political difficulties around this uh, this story. And I think, you know, there still are tensions between East and West, and Czechoslovakia is still, you know, we've seen it recently with the um, issues with the explosion at the arms arms depot in, um, you know, and and work from Russian agents in Czechoslovakia. Uh, that, that the fight still goes on, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story and. In some ways, you could say that the the final part of your research, you were made to work hard to uncover <laughs> and piece piece things together. But you'd got your photo album that your grandfather had. You'd got archive documents and some of his uh, more uh, unique documents that he had that identified him in, in pseudonym names, for example, that helped you piece things together. Yeah, I mean, I think you um, had lots of advantages. I mean, I think the point is this story has been deliberately obscured for lots of good reasons, you know. Um, you know, I, I found myself in a unique situation as being to somebody who had the motivation to spend what is now 20 years <laughs> researching this, had the memory. I'm, I've been blessed with quite a good memory. Um, so I could remember and uh, and bring up some of these, some of these stories. Uh, you know. I, you know, I'm an academic, um, so I, I know how to do research. Uh, and I found, the, you know, and you're always, as an academic, you're always looking for a good area of research. I actually realized I was sitting on one, you know, and my, my whole life was revolving around one, you know. So I've been in a unique position to be able to, be able to look into this story and 
find the cracks and find the deliberate cracks, um, which they are. And for good reason, you know, the world of intelligence, as I understand, is you know, you don't take anything at face value. Um, and and you're right. And um, my grandfather had kept a lot of stuff, so I've actually got his, his. I've got his mission report. I've got his false ID papers. I've got his, um, uh, you know, um, personal notes with his colleagues after the war, um, including Miroslav Novak, who was again one of the, the radio operators. Um, so I've got a lot of inf evidence and information. And the really interesting thing for me was at the heart of this story was really this conundrum between a mission that never happened and my grandfather, who, as far as I knew, never told a lie, <laughs> telling me that it did happen. There's a conundrum there to un unpick. Um, and the interesting thing for me is when I did do all my archive research and um, pulled together all the pieces and all the information, everything my grandfather told me checks out. Um, so, you know, and this is it in the book, why wouldn't I take him at face? Why would I, why would I choose to disbelieve um, my grandfather, who never told a lie to me as far as I can tell, when all the information checks out and the political context checks out for something that would be difficult for him to admit, uh, you know, that basically kill people, <laughs> you know, to your grandson. Um, and for something that was politically very difficult for him to admit doing, um, because as I've subsequently found out, people were threatening to kill him because he, the accusations that he'd done it. Um, so for me, there's only one, um, conclusion to draw at the end of the book but there still will always remain that ambiguity because the principal um parties aren't around anymore and you did have help from some of his friends and colleagues along the way with piecing things together as well yeah no i i am um, for uh you know i think a lot of it's always too late to uncover some of these stories the time to do it if anybody's out there and has got a kind of you know some history that they want to uncover I, my my advice would be do it today <laughs> pick up the phone and and do contact those people so i kick myself that i didn't manage to speak so when i started this research uh, a guy called carol hubel who was one of my grandfather's team on foursquare was still alive but i never managed to make contact with him um uh yaroslav klemesh of operation platinum chestnut shikola they were all alive when i started this and they were all colleagues of my grandfather's um partly time and effort you know you you kind of never get round to it now we see this now as a book but at the time i've had work to do and you know family to raise and other things and i never got round to it partly though there was a reticence to talk to him about this because i thought i knew how difficult it was for my grandfather and so you know contacting him out of the blue and asking him to talk about this sort of stuff when i didn't have that personal relationship would have been a bit of a deep breath to do but i did speak to um a uh, lovely man, actually, um, Jiri Lauder, who was one of his old contacts from the VRU and who actually um, designed the, uh, as a heraldry expert in his post-military uh, career and designed the um, coat of arms of, of the Czech Republic. Um, uh, so he was one of my grandfather's teammates at the VRU uh, and he gave me, he helped me identify photographs and identify locations and was very, very helpful. And um, another was my grandfather's old friend from Barnov, um, his, his hometown, a man called Alois Apishka, uh, who was very, very helpful. Um, I actually had a photograph, one of the photographs in the book is of uh, Josef Bublik and um, my grandfather and Alois Piska um, with a camel in <laughs> North Africa and, and, and Piska, my grandfather, on the back of the camel. Um, so it was nice to be able to speak to him 
uh, he wasn't involved with intelligence services, but he was able to give me real context around the you know the, the experience of getting out of the country. And he went; they went on exactly the same route, uh, and, and their paths crossed as they went out of Czechoslovakia into into Prague. So I was able to speak to some to some to some people and gather some information that really helped me understand a bit more of the context. And again, make this a real story. It's about as you, as you said, it's a real story about real people in extraordinary circumstances. It's not a comic book story of evil nazis and heroic soldiers you know that that doesn't do it justice you know they, they're, they're real flesh and blood people and you know examples for all of us because you know one thing you'll realize is things can go sideways pretty quickly um, and and you know history has a habit of repeating itself and um you know it's a bit of an inspiration that a reminder that if we're not careful we, we could all end up in a similar situation <laughs> You know, and then you get, and then you're called to test yourself to see whether you're, you know, uh, whether you'll behave more like Carol Churder and William Garrick, which I understand now with the context. I understand why they did what they did, um, or whether you'll, you know, take the more difficult path. <laughs> yeah, and the journey that you you've taken uh, alongside your grandfather to cover this story how does it feel now when you return to the czech republic knowing this story what how's that feel for you well i haven't i mean we were due to i was due to take my um i was due to go with my family and my two young boys to um prague this time last year but covid put an end to that so i would love to go again and i've actually made some contacts um now uh with you know um People at the embassy and uh, others, you know, and I, I think I, when I go again, I'll go with a new, a new kind of appreciation and understanding. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. I haven't done it. I mean, I have been before a couple of times to Prague. Uh, I've been to obviously to the Church of Saint Cyril and Methodius. Um, I, f I feel a strange sort of affinity with Czechoslovakia. Obviously, I've got lots of relatives, lots of cousins over there, um, but at the same time. The only real affinity I've got is with my grandfather, and he spent his life, most of his life, in exile from Czechoslovakia. So it's a strange feeling being there. Really, it's a strange, it's a strange feeling. Um, but certainly, I, um, even though this was all a long, long time ago now, you know, 70, 80 years ago, um, I can't help but think when I do go again, it will all feel very current to me. Yeah, and that that's fully understandable. Uh, as the the book comes across very well it's very well written the the personal side to the story as well as the historic context of what unfolded uh and and as you say when you return your thoughts are going to be with your your uh grandfather and his friends who he fought alongside through france then in the uh, the czech republic uh and and so on so i can see how that would have an effect I mean, I should say, um, much as he spent much of his life in exile, he did come to terms with things at the end of his life. So when Václav Havel came in and, you know, the, the country, um, you know, regained its independence in, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, he was re rehabilitated. So he was given his back his rank and he was actually promoted to lieutenant colonel. Um, he was given uh, a small pension, which you know so he i he, he got a real sense of satisfaction i think that mission had been accomplished you know it had taken a long time and he'd had to sacrifice his his life and his 
the life he'd envisaged for himself. He's envisaged his life in Czechoslovakia with the Czech family, um, you know, and, and part of that community. And and he li he lived a very different life. But I think he did um, he did um, get a real degree of satisfaction at the end when uh, he was able to. And he did go back to Czechoslovakia. He's visited his family in in Barnov. Um, and so in the end, I think um, there was a degree of validation that it, it had been it, that, that their set all the sacrifices hadn't been for nothing um yeah and your your book obviously continues his legacy that it's there for it's for others to now read uh, and gain a sense of what took place yeah i mean I, I one of the reasons i wrote it was was so that my kids would my children would know their great grandfather <laughs> he was my kind of role model and kind of a real influence on me. So I kind of wanted to convey that and share that down the, the generations. Um, but having written it, um, I'm really pleased that the feedback it's, get, it's gotten from people who've read it and the kind of, um, you know, from people like yourself and others, um, you know, I'm keen that um, anybody who would like to, who, who, who would enjoy it gets an opportunity to know about it and, and, and read it. Cause I think it's a, you know, I've had the feedback that it is very readable uh you know and actually you know you learn a lot about czechoslovakian history that you wouldn't necessarily know and actually it's importance it's absolute criticality it's a, it's a really in some ways it's the central story of the second world war um you know it started with uh with munich you know and 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 ended with you know in, in fact the um if if my grandfather's story is true him and the oss members who went with him to prague is the furthest west that any soldiers went in the second world war so you know there is a kind of um there is a kind of um uh, completeness to the story you know and and it, and it does give you really new insights but it, but again also i think it's there's a very human angle to it and a very personal um side as well and i you know i'm as i say for me having written it now i thought it would be a deep breath but i'm you know i'm having to do more to promote it and to get it out there and i'm keen to do any opportunities for that um and for, for book reviews as well for if anybody watching the podcast does read it and has liked it then i'm looking for reviews on amazon bookbub goodreads and um i hope if it does if it does um you know um spread it will be through word of mouth i think so that's kind of what i'm i'm, I'm hoping and, and and looking for but but in a way it's good that it's out there and it's good that you know able to share the story with other people um and 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 he my grandfather never talked about this i don't necessarily know whether he would have welcomed the attention welcomed the fact his story was being told or not but i was determined to tell it anyway and i have told it anyway <laughs> so it's not his choice anymore <laughs> i'm gonna I'm, i've told the story anyway and just uh from yourself if you can just give us the full book title again and where is best for people to go to purchase the book yeah, so the book is Foursquare, The Last Parachutist. Um, it is available on uh, as ebook or a print book on um, Amazon. Um, but it is also available through other booksellers. Um, it's, 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 it should be available through uh, Waterstones. It's available through um, online booksellers um, and should be able to be ordered through bookshops. Um, uh, I'm just we're just working out a few kinks on 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 that at the moment, but I know. Um, um it's 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 why it's widely widely available widely available the ebook at the moment is only on amazon but it should be available through other other bookshops as well that's brilliant 
from ourselves at World War II Nation, we'd just like to thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us uh, over a fascinating part of your family history and uh, story of the Second World War and before and after, really, as well. It's uh, it's an excellent uh, story. Oh, thanks, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity. And I said, I've really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's uh, As I say, I've spent a lot of time on the story. It's great to be able to go through it again and realise how much I've learned over the, uh, over the period of writing the book. And uh, hopefully in the future, we'll see you out on the streets of uh, Prague as well with your family. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm looking forward to that as soon as, uh, as, soon as we get the um, all clear. I, that should, we're overdue that trip, so I'll be looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. Hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Wolves Nation, and also Instagram at Wolves Nation HQ. Coming up next on the O Group, we're talking with historian Adam Berry about the crucial role played by Troop Carrier Command during the Second World War.